You're listening to Dental Talk from VivaLearning.com. Welcome to Dental Talk. I'm Dr. Phil Klein. Today we'll be focusing on new techniques and research in local anesthesia and how Articane can help you get your patients comfortably numb faster and more efficiently. Our guest is Dr. David Eisen, who runs a private practice in Toronto called Sleep for Dentistry, which treats patients with anesthetic and medical challenges. He has presented over 400 presentations locally and internationally on topics related to local anesthesia and medical emergency management in healthcare settings. Dr. Eisen is a published author and past consultant for dental and pharmaceutical companies. Before we get started today, I would like to thank Perel Pharma, maker of Oroblock, for sponsoring this podcast. Also, I would like to invite everyone to Dr. Eisen's upcoming Viva Learning webinar titled Local Anesthesia, New Devices, Drugs, Techniques, and Research. That webinar will be taking place on Monday, November 15th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific. Feel free to reserve your seat at vivalearning.com. Dr. Eisen, it's a pleasure to have you on Dental Talk. Thank you, Dr. Klein. It's a pleasure to be here. Again, I mentioned your webinar that's coming up in the introduction, and uh, we just spoke briefly, and you have some really new research to share with us on that webinar that's coming up. And that, again, that's on November 15th, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. So let's start with this question. What do you think are factors that might inhibit dental practitioners from incorporating new technology, drugs, even research findings into their practices? So the, the webinar that we're going to do uh, in, in a couple of weeks uh, will cover a lot of new gadgets and products that are available in the marketplace. And often dentists don't know about these uh, devices uh, because local anesthetic continuing education is hard to find. There aren't a lot of good uh, local anesthetic CE courses uh, there's a lot of great courses on placing resins and, and doing beautiful veneers. Uh, and so even though so many great products are coming out, dentists don't know about them. Uh, and then when they do learn about them, depending on the style of practice, some dentists, I think, uh, and, and, and even hygienists who use these devices are, are very open to trying new things and it's their style to do so. And, and others like the sort of tried and true, uh, you know, it's hard for some people to take the time out of their day to, to you know, it takes time to learn about new devices and gadgets. Yeah, uh, and, so. and I, th I think it's almost easier for a dentist to adopt a new technique in composite restorative dentistry than it is in local anesthesia. I know when I went to dental school, when I first learned how to give an injection, it was a little bit stressful, especially when we're doing it on our colleagues who they know less than we do, right? And they're giving us their injection or as, as much as we do. But, um, and then you learn the technique and you feel comfortable with it and you go through years of your clinical dentistry and you just feel comfortable. You're getting good success and you're not really looking for someone to tell you to change your technique in, in something that you know is a sensitive thing, is giving an injection, putting a needle inside someone's soft tissue with with nerves and blood vessels and everything else there. So that's something that is probably more difficult for someone to change their behavior in as far as technique. And I know you, you gave a great webinar in the past on Viva Learning about technique. You had great slides that showed the anatomy of the mandible and the maxilla. It was, it's really fascinating to see it like that and the way you describe it. So what are some reasons that make local anesthetics less effective and how might one remedy these situations? 
in my local anesthetic talk, which which goes on for six or seven hours when we do a full day CE, there's 10 or 12 reasons that uh, I could come up with that could stop a local anesthetic from, from working most effectively. But, but I think the three most important factors are, first of all, the patient's anatomy, so bony anatomy and neuroanatomy, uh, whereby some people have uh, a different location of the inferior alveolar nerve into the ramus, or they have accessory innervation from the mylohyoid nerve. Up to 60% of adults have this accessory innervation uh, to the molars and premolars in the mandible. Uh, and, and so when we're doing our standard inferior alveolar nerve block, if people have this unusual anatomy, you know, we're not putting the local anesthetic where we think we are. Uh, or we're not getting the whole area anesthetized because of the accessory nerves or the wide bone. Uh, and, and so that's difficult and we don't really know that that's the case unless the local anesthetic doesn't work. As well, uh, infection uh, is, is a big factor. So many times when we're doing a restorative procedure, uh, we haven't necessarily taken a periapical radiograph of the tooth. We think we're doing restorative. Uh, we put in the local anesthetic and the tooth just isn't getting numb. And the infection of the area isn't allowing the lipid soluble molecules of the local anesthetic to penetrate the nerve uh, fatty layer. So infection wreaks havoc on uh, our success of, of local anesthesia. And to compound this, our local anesthetics generally are acidic as well. So into an acidic area, we're injecting more acid. Uh, so that really we're just going down a slippery slope going backwards uh, and in, in situations like that, if we could take a periapical radiograph, look to see if there's a pulpitis and then maybe try a plain solution which doesn't have a vasoconstrictor, uh, it's not as acidic, uh, it'll have a higher success rate in these uh, infected areas. And, and finally, time is a factor whereby more than one third of people take longer than 15 minutes to get numb after an inferior alveolar nerve block. And again, we don't know that until we see the patient for the first time and we're giving the anesthetic and it's just not working. Well, it's just, this is a, a latent onset case. When it comes to the infection inhibiting the, the actual activity of the anesthetic solution, is that more pertaining to infiltration injections? Because if you're giving a mandibular block, hopefully there's not infectious disease back near the mandibular canal if you're trying to treat a molar. When you're doing infiltration, if you're talking about number eight or nine, then you're giving infiltration around the apical foramen, which is where their infection can be. So is that what you're referring to when you talk about the infectious areas? Well, yes, but funny enough, even with inferior alveolar nerve blocks, which are far away from the infection, uh, the local anesthetic isn't as effective. It seems as though local anesthetics, uh, or sorry, infected tissue can prime the sodium channels that are resistant to local anesthetics. They already exist in the infected area, but they can prime the nerve along its whole length to react differently to the local anesthetic, oh, really? not only in the area uh, wow. of injection. So I did not know that. So if someone has tooth number 30 and they have a distal periapical rarefaction and the tooth is non-vital and it's, it's infected, you're saying that if I gave a mandibular block and I'm far away from that tooth near the mandibular canal, I don't know how far, but far enough, that the effect of that anesthetic solution 
can be deprecated based on the infection at the local area of the molar. That's true. Wow. That is, yeah. And there's articles, I'm sure, that have been written about this. There are. Yeah. Um, and, and for a long that's time. I haven't read them, right? <laughs> you can say it. <laughs> yes. And for a long time, you know, we weren't sure whether it was the mediators of inflammation traveling up the nerve tract. But now we're thinking that it's the uh, sodium channels that are already resistant that are more primed along the whole length of the nerve from the infection. Okay. So in your past webinar, and I took a look at it before we had this podcast, you talked a lot about articane, and it really had some sensational results in the research as compared to lidocaine in several areas. Um, right. So let me ask you this question. What makes articane unique, and how would you recommend using it to maximize overall local anesthesia? So articane is a, a fascinating local anesthetic. First of all, it's the only local anesthetic that was invented for dentistry. It came out in the late 60s uh, in Germany. And the, this uh, local anesthetic happens to be more lipid soluble than our other injectables. So, you know, compared to bupivacaine, lidocaine, prilocaine, lipivacaine, uh, articaine has a higher degree of lipid solubility because its molecule has an extra uh, lipid chain. Uh, that allows it to have a faster onset of action, a longer duration of action, and an ability to penetrate tissue better than our other local anesthetics. So as you alluded to these studies, if you compare articaine to lidocaine, let's say infiltrating a mandibular premolar, it works much better. In fact, infiltrating with articaine in the mandible is as effective as an inferior alveolar nerve block with any local anesthetic. That's over premolars and, and anterior teeth and first molars in some people. So smaller adults with thin cortical plates, uh, uh, infiltration with articaine is going to work very nicely in the mandible. Um, also, studies show that just generally as an infiltration drug, articaine has a two to three times increased chance to give us pulpal anesthesia, not only in healthy teeth, but also on teeth with pulpitis. So generally, just studies show it's just a better, more penetrating local anesthetic. The only thing it doesn't outperform is bupivacaine's duration after a block. So bupivacaine is always going to give you longer anesthesia uh, duration. So articaine is going to outperform everything uh, otherwise. So when you say pulpitis, um, as an endodontist retired, that means to me that pulp is alive, but it's inflamed. Is that what you're talking? You're not talking about an infected pulp. You're talking about a tooth that is vital, that has that's symptomatic when you talked about the local anesthetic effect. Yes. Okay. The, the uh, hot tooth that, we're all, that we all dread treating. Right, but the hot tooth, not in the sense that it's non-vital, the hot tooth that's vital, where the nerve either. tissue is alive. Uh, studies show that articaine works better in either situation. Okay, so if it's, so pulpitis meaning the live situation where there's live pulp tissue in there or an infected tooth that's hot where it's sensitive to percussion, um, that also applies as well to articaine. Yes. Okay, yeah, I just want to differentiate that because just by semantics, pulpitis usually refers to as a, as a vital tooth. So tell us also about the infiltration. You, you did mention a little bit, but give us examples where you would think articaine would be ideal to use 
for a patient that a normal mandibular block with lidocaine would not be appropriate? So uh, there was one interesting study where uh, somebody had a mandibular block with lidocaine and it failed. And they looked at the best secondary injection uh, that would enhance or give us pulpal anesthesia. So they compared uh, a PDL injection, intraosseous injection, a second inferior alveolar nerve block, and an infl infiltration with articaine. And the study showed that the infiltration with articaine was the best way to solve a failed inferior alveolar nerve block. So I think we can use articaine in cases where our traditional blocks fail, um, or just generally uh, for any of our run-of-the-mill patients who need dentistry uh, in the anterior premolar region, or choosing it selectively uh, for a first molar. You know, I would never use articaine as an infiltration drug beside a second or third molar. I don't think it's going to be able to penetrate the thick cortical bone in, in, in that area. Uh, but otherwise, you know, it, it can be used highly effectively in those other areas. So if a doctor's generally using lidocaine, when they're not getting the results they want on a mandibular block, they could move towards infiltration using articaine as a secondary alternative towards local anesthesia, but not in a case where you have someone who's a very large person with endomorphic tendencies where their bone is very thick. That, there's no point in trying that in that scenario. Right. But I would also add that even for the dentist who likes their blocks and they work really well, uh, the patients don't necessarily like them very much. And so even with high success inferior nerve blocks, I think a dentist or a hygienist or a patient uh, might find it nicer to have an inf infiltration instead of a block. Mm -hmm. What keeps a dentist from using articaine for everything? What's the downside? Some people might be a little bit scared of it because it's a 4% solution. Uh, we do have to be careful. Uh, from a volume perspective, uh, we can only give half as much compared to lidocaine. Lidocaine and articaine have equal potencies and toxicities, and lidocaine is only 2%. So we can give twice as much lidocaine as we can articaine. Um, and so maybe people are a little bit concerned about that. Uh, but generally, if we stick to the maximum dosages, it's it's a very safe drug to use. Right. So, I mean, if we went by the saying less is more, then maybe articaine has its advantages over lidocaine. Um, in Europe, they use articaine pretty much across the board, right, for most patients in dentistry? That's true. A lot of countries, uh, articaine is 90% of the marketplace and, and has been since the 70s. So it might be something more that just in the States, we just are so used to lidocaine and maybe they just want more research uh, to show what, what, you know, what the scenario is. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think also um, articaine uh, might be a little bit more costly. Uh, now, I, this is something that I looked at a number of years ago. I'm not sure if it's the same true today, uh, but it may be slightly uh, more expensive than another local anesthetic like lidocaine, which is off-label and is made by everybody. Uh, and, and that might inhibit some people. Mm -hmm. So what are some underused products or techniques that might help improve the efficacy and decrease in injection pain? So uh, I think two really important factors. First of all, um, we all try to inject slowly, uh, but the average time for a dentist or hygienist to give an inferior alveolar nerve block is 20 seconds. 
uh, which is too fast for from a pain perspective. The, the most important factor for pain is the rate of injection. Studies also show that slow inferior alveolar nerve blocks are more uh, effective. They have a higher success rate of giving good anesthesia. So a block given over a minute has the highest success rate compared to one given over 45 seconds or 30 seconds or 20 seconds. Uh, so I, I think slow injections are really important for for efficacy, for effectiveness uh, and for, for patient comfort. Um, and also uh, get, get a really good needle. Uh, you know, a sharp needle, when we use it, is going to be less painful than a needle that might be blunted. Uh, and so if you think about um, using needles over uh, on obviously in the same patient after the second or third injection, sometimes it's harder to push the needle through tissue. It does blunt very quickly and, and, and that could cause a little bit more tissue trauma and more pain. So really good sharp needles will, will be a little bit more comfortable for the patient as well. And as far as the type of articane that you use or recommend, I know that uh, Perel Pharma is the sponsor of this podcast and they have a fantastic um, manufacturing facility in Italy where they have this uh, sterilization process, which is unique to articane. And it also maintains the ingredients, uh, the shelf life, I think a little bit better than lidocaine. And that's Oroblock. Is that something you recommend? Yes, uh, Oroblock is an excellent articane. Um, and they come as a one in 200,000 and one in 100,000 100, epinephrine concentration. Um, and I think the one in 200,000 uh, is, is the best solution uh, for general dental procedures. I, the only reason I would ever use one in 100,000 epinephrine is if I need a little bit more hemostasis. There's no benefit for duration or strength of anesthesia or onset of anesthesia more vasoconstrictor doesn't really give us any any benefits besides hemostasis. And that's with articane. But I always thought lidocaine needed that epinephrine in order for the the liquid to stay put, you know, where in the location where you wanted it to work. Well, that's true. Uh, but lidocaine only comes as a 1 in 100,000 solution. I see. I see. It, if it came in 100, 1 in 200,000, I'd recommend that. Oh, okay. Uh, I see. Okay. So that is an advantage. That's that's a huge advantage right there for articane is reducing the amount of epinephrine necessary to give that yeah. injection. Yeah, and that when we get back to the problem of acidity and using local anesthetics with a lot of vasoconstrictor, if you have a one in two hundred thousand solution, you'll have less acidity than with a one in one hundred thousand solution. Right. So you'll get better activity in the event that you're injecting into an acidic environment, as in, in an infectious environment. That's right. Yeah. So. Uh, do you see a trend changing in the U.S. for Articane? Because I know Oroblock is getting more popular. I speak to my friends who are dentists, and many of them are using Oroblock very successfully. When I practiced, they didn't have Oroblock. Do you see that changing? I do. I think more and more people will hear about it. Um, I think more people will use Articane in the future. Uh, and when it first came out uh, in Canada in the 80s, it was only by word of mouth that the drug became popular and, and in quite a short period of time, it made up 50% of the marketplace. Wow. And that was 50% of the marketplace in Canada back in the 80s? Yeah. And in in it came out in the mid-80s mid and by the late 80s, it was about 50%. Of the what is it now in Canada? About that. Okay. So it's, it's pretty much reached its peak 
and it's 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 staying at about half the market. Yeah. Are you an oral surgeon? I'm a dentist. I I do anesthesia in my practice, so I have a dental anesthesia practice. Okay, so sleep for dentistry, does that mean that most of the procedures you do, the patient's out? Yes. Mostly we use IV sedation, uh, and my patients are uh, mostly uh, dental phobics or uh, people with nice, strong gag reflexes, uh, medically compromised people. What an incredible way to build a practice, attracting that kind of patient population. You would think that it's more stressful, but if they're sleeping, it doesn't matter that they're phobic, right? <laughs> uh, it, adds, it adds a whole other level of stress for the practitioner, obviously. <laughs> I'm, uh, sure. The, I'm sure. The, uh, uh, but yes, I mean, the patients certainly enjoy uh, and appreciate uh, being uh, asleep for the procedure. And is that something you started fresh out of dental school, or did you fall into that further into your career? I, I was really lucky, and I joined a practitioner uh, who had a dental anesthesia practice on the go. Uh, and he was a, a, a fellow named Dr. Mel Hawkins. He was a wonderful mentor and taught me uh, taught me the ropes. Uh, and then I went back and got a little bit of extra training. And I'm not a, a fully trained dental anesthesiologist. My training allows me to do intravenous sedation, not general anesthesia. Um, but we have people here in our practice who can do general anesthesia if we need that. So most of all your patients go to sleep while you do the procedures. <clears throat> you don't have a part of your practice that it, that's awake and fully aware of what's happening, or do you? No, I do actually. About half my patients are awake or, or nitrous oxide, uh, and then the other half are IV sedation. Interesting. And does that increase your liability insurance quite a bit by doing sleep? Here, it's, it's our choice. Uh, we buy the amount of liability insurance that we wish. Um, but of course, I buy the maximum just to make sure I'm, I'm covered as much as possible. Yeah, I would, I would, I would assume so. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I'm just wondering whether uh, you would be filling a room if you did a CE program on sleep for dentistry. I, I, I mean, I know you talk about anesthesia, but is that part of your CE program? It's a really hard thing for dentists to, new dentists to incorporate into their practice because there are a lot of very strict rules and guidelines. Uh, most states and provinces in Canada now require the dentist to have uh, three or four years of postgraduate training after dentistry to do IV sedation and, and put people to sleep. Um, so it's, it's really not a popular CE topic. I don't think a lot of people, right. but you know, talking about nitrous oxide, I think is very important. I do talk about that in CE courses and, you know, oral benzodiazepines are also uh, are, are important topics for people to learn, to learn about. Anti-anxiety for sure. Okay. Well, I think that's been super helpful, uh, Dr. Eisen. I, I'm really looking forward to your webinar, Local Anesthesia, New Devices, Drugs, Techniques, and Research. And again, as I mentioned, that's coming up on Monday, November 15th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, which I think is Toronto time as well, right? Yep, that's and, right. Right, and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the West, if you're on the West Coast. And again, you can reserve your seat at vivalearning.com. So we look forward to that. Dr. Eisen, I hope to have you on future podcasts. It's been great, and uh, have a great evening. Thank you, Dr. Klein, and thank you to Perel and Viva Learning for sponsoring this. And uh, I, this was lots of fun, and uh, I appreciate doing it. Thank you.